Thank you, Autumn. If you would please turn to Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. This one's titled, He's Got the Whole World in His Hand. Remember that song? He's got the whole world in his hand. Right, yeah, everybody's got that one down. He's got the whole world in his hand. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 14 today. Beginning in verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Jonah said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We pray, we earnestly pray, O Lord, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Well, as we departed the last time, the captain of the ship had uh, awakened Jonah, and it appears that Jonah must have listened to him, and uh, the arrangement here in the wording of the Hebrew implies that he has now joined the other men. He's with them. And after crying out to their false gods, uh, and then lightening the ship by throwing cargo overboard, as we examined last week, you know, their predicament, it has not improved. It's not any better. So the sailors became determined that somebody must be to blame. Somebody's got to be to blame for this. Uh, So being a superstitious group, verse 7 says that they decided to cast lots. That's like rolling dice for you young folks. Let's cast lots. Let's flip a coin. Now, Christians would never do anything like this. No, no. We're far too spiritual to place a very important decision into the fate of chance. But wait, there was a friend of mine once. I remember he was, uh, he was working at a job, and, and his boss had been found to be dishonest, had been discredited. It was a ministry, actually, not just a job, but a ministry and uh, he was struggling with days, uh, for days, what he should do. And uh, he was sharing with me uh, how he's losing sleep, didn't know whether he would or would not remain in his position. And, uh, but one day he told me with great excitement, I figured it out. I know what I am to do. God had provided him the answer. And this is how God did it. The man closed his eyes and he opened up his Bible and he stuck his finger on a verse. Landed on 1 Samuel 
chapter 24. And this is where David had cut the piece of the robe off from Saul. Remember that? And uh, it says, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord Saul, that is, uh, for he is the Lord's anointed. And therefore, my friend determined, you know, my boss is, is my Lord, and, and in my situation, he's the anointed, therefore I'm going to remain loyal to him, and I'm going to stick it out. Does anybody see any problem with this at all? Um, yeah, well, first, God doesn't tell Christians today to make our decisions by chance. Uh, while asking God for wisdom, we are told to make our choices to the best we can in harmony with God's Word. Second, my friend had a horrible interpretation and application. Uh, David was right. Saul was God's anointed king over Israel at that time, uh, to whom David was to remain loyal to until God decided to take him out. Uh, But your boss today is not king. Uh, He's not God's anointed king. And uh, you, must, uh, you do not have to remain loyal to your boss even if he has turned corrupt. Uh, who is your king today? Comparing to Israel, the king of Israel, who is king? Jesus Christ, right? He is on the throne of David today. He has inherited that throne. We remain loyal to him. We would never overthrow him. We would never question him. Uh, so if your boss is corrupt today, you may want to dust off your resume. Just a little, uh, little, that's for free there. Unfortunately, these sailors were not Christians. They were not believers even in their day. They were very superstitious. And uh, they didn't know any better way to address things. We don't know what to do. Somebody's got to be responsible. Have you ever run into that? You run into a problem either in class or, or with, with family members? Somebody's got to be responsible for this, right? And they had determined that. So we learned last week that God is uh, unequivocal in, uh, in his control of the, the weather. There's no doubt he has control of it. The question now is for these sailors who had this just extreme storm that they knew was, was something was wrong because it was just atypical for the region they were in, the time it was in, it was so severe. And um, they knew that was in God's control. And we have to ask, is God in control of these men casting lots? He's in control of the weather, of the waves, no doubt about that. Is he in control of these lots? Absolutely. God is in control of that. Proverbs 16, verse 33 tells us, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And verse 7 informs us that this lot then fell on Jonah. But even though God is in control of every lot... Christians are never told by God to use superstition or chance to determine anyone's responsibility or guilt. Uh, Israel did use lots. You'd say, Pastor, didn't Israel use lots? Yes, they did. When God directly told them to use lots. And uh, as in the case of Achan, in the book of Joshua, if you remember, Achan had taken things that were banned from Jericho. He, he was not supposed to take them. Nobody knew who it was. They had suffered military loss. And uh, people were questioning, what's going on here, Joshua? And uh, Achan had these items. But Israel didn't arbitrarily just decide to cast lots among all these tribes to find out who was guilty. That, that's not what they did. God specifically told Joshua 
cast lots. And he said to him in chapter 7, verse 14, said to Joshua, In the morning then you shall come near the, by your tribes. This is a very large number of people now, so he's going to narrow them down by lots. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot uh, come near by families. And then the families which the Lord takes, indicating by lot, come, uh, they shall come by uh, nearby households, and the household which the Lord takes uh, by lots shall come near man by man. And sh- it shall be that the one who is taken again by a lot with the things under this ban shall be burned with fire. Ouch. That's not, that's not a good outcome. Would anybody want to mess with this? No, no, we won't want to mess with this today. Does anyone struggle to understand why we don't use this for assigning guilt to someone when something goes wrong? Well, let's just cast lots. Uh, I hope you, you believe that uh, we don't use that because there are places that do. There are churches that do. And uh, you might find, possibly find a church that just says, you know, the pastor will get up, we've got a problem here, and we're just going to throw out lots to find out who is the problem. You'll find out from time to time, uh, most of the time with them, somehow the pastor forgets to put his name in the hat. Everybody's under such stress, it's like, what has happened here? And uh, that's not a good way to go about things. We don't use lots in that way. May I suggest a better way for the church? Actually, actually Scripture suggests it. By the eyewitness testimony of two or three witnesses, Right? Hard and fast witnesses. And um, with Joshua, God was teaching Israel that Joshua was still in command. Nothing had happened with Joshua. And he was teaching Israel that he was still in control by using the lots. God was still in control. Uh, Proverbs 13 wasn't even written yet. You know, the lot is cast into the lap every decision from the Lord. These people had a very limited scripture. God is teaching them a lesson through Joshua. And uh, we need to be reminded also that when the lot fell on Achan, it wasn't just the lot. Um, He confessed. Without coercion, he confessed. He he said, yep, I'm the one. And um, not only that, but then they went to his tent and they unearthed a whole bunch of evidence, right? It wasn't just on the lot. It was confirmed by hardcore testimony and, and, uh, and by evidence. So they, he was content, condemned on that evidence itself. And um, God just showed that I'm in control of this. I can find this out so that Israel would fear him and obey. The church functions on uh, two or three eyewitnesses, not rolling dice. I would say, though, and you're going to ask, isn't there a situation in the New Testament where they cast lots? Actually, there is. And Scripture would suggest that it is permissible, not commanded, but it is permissible to cast lots for Christians today. You're like, really? Yes. Yes, it is. The apostles, when they backfilled the office of Judah Iscariot, they had two men, right? Remember their names? Matthias and Joseph. And they had two men that were equally qualified, had the same background, had been with Jesus since the first day, and there was no way to determine which one was the one. But they were equal. So they cast lots to allow God to decide 
which one it was they're going to go forward with. It wasn't comparing apples and oranges. If you so decided, it would be permissible if you had two equal opportunities. You can't discern the difference if you so desired to cast a lot. If you want to go to Auburn or Alabama, a full scholarship to both, you're going to study uh, something that's covered in both, I would suggest Auburn. But um, you would, if you had, had a choice like that, and you're like, I can't decide. They are completely equal. You could decide to cast a lot. Don't have to. It's permissible. Um, God controls even the lot. His hand is that big. The whole world is in his hand. It's not just the weather, something that big. It is the lot is in control. And uh, this lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him in verse 8, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Notice two things. First, even the sailors sought confirmation after casting the lot. Even they wanted to know. Tell us what is going on here. They wanted information. Second, Jonah still had not volunteered any information. He had still kept everything to himself, even though he had been woken up and told to call on his God uh, by the captain. He's probably just upset that they woke him up. But in verse 9, he finally provides them with an answer. And this is ultimately, this answer is going to save them all from perishing. He identifies God by name. Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. My God, Jonah says, is uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the uh, I am who I am and the mighty creator. That's what he's telling them. And this just strikes fear into them because they now realize why this is an unexplained storm. They figured it out. The God who created the sea, the mighty creator God, the God who created the land, he's manipulating it. He's causing this storm like they hadn't experienced before. So their fears are confirmed and and they realize now this is out of our hands. There's nothing we can do about this in ourselves. Um, this, this idea that God created the earth, it's a very prevalent idea. That somehow he, he put the, the hands of time in motion. He, yeah, he was involved with creation, but then he just kind of backed off. And, and now earth and all these other things are just kind of running on their own. It's kind of up to you what you do with your life. You cannot reconcile that to Scripture. God is intimately involved in every single thing that you're doing. Every single thing. And uh, he's not hands-off at all from his creation. He is a creator that's concerned about everyone. And in verse 10, it says that then these men became extremely frightened. And they said to Jonah, how could you do this? For the men knew that, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. So now he had offered up even more information that isn't even recorded here. He filled in these blank spaces of how he had disobeyed Yahweh Elohim. And they said, you've got to be kidding. 
Who would do something like that? You know his will. That doesn't even make sense. And in verse 11, now after a uh, affirmation the storm is because of Jonah. He, he's part of the reason God intervened and realizing that God actually is control in control of all these waves that are beating their ship. They ask, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? Interesting question. They realize what everybody knows. There needs to be justice for disobedience. Everybody knows there needs to be ultimately justice. There must be punishment for disobedience. Somebody needs to be punished. That way the others can be set free. They'll be safe and they'll be saved. Because verse 11 now reveals that that this sea, it was getting stormier and stormier. They had already thrown off the cargo. Now it's getting worse. Nothing they've tried has worked. So they ask... What shall we do to you that justice will be served, Jonah? What is an appropriate punishment so that we can be saved, Jonah? And God's prophet says, in a a sense, this. I will be the sacrifice. I'll be the sacrifice. It will be me. Cast me out into the sea, and everything will become calm for you. I will have to die, but you Gentiles are going to be saved. Sound familiar? 750 years before Christ, a picture of the gospel. In Luke uh, 24, after Christ had been resurrected, a very familiar story of two men on the road to Emmaus. You remember it. Not realizing that they were walking with Jesus who had been resurrected. They were lamenting to him. And they said this, We were hoping that it would be he who was going to redeem Israel. But they killed him. And in verse 25 it says, Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, notice all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You couldn't make this stuff up. Over 40 different authors in scripture, more than 1,500 years in writing scripture, this this occurrence with Jonah, more than 750 years before the crucifixion of Christ, and you've got a picture of the gospel. You can't orchestrate that between 40 different, 40 plus different writers. Can't make scripture up. Verse 12 says, Jonah said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know on account of me this great storm has come upon you. You know, Jonah's a Hebrew prophet. He knows most of these things. Uh, he knows he holds guilt for sin that he had in his body. He knows there is guilt. He knows there has to be blood sacrifice for guilt. The wages of sin is death. So so the Gentiles have now been provided with a solution to their predicament through the Hebrew prophet. And you resign yourself, he said, to becoming responsible in a sense for putting God's prophet to death. 
and you will be saved. If you don't participate, if you don't put me to death, if you don't share blame in putting me to death, so to speak, you're going to perish. You are going to go down with the ship. The Gentiles have been provided with a solution. What is unregenerate man's natural response? Do it yourself. That came from Nathan. Well, let's see. This is an easy one. They say, we're going to row. We've got a solution here from the prophet of God. Things will become calm if we just cast him away uh, into the sea so that uh, everything will become calm. We're going to go it alone. Wise decision, right? Let's see how that works. They say, I'm not having any part of this tossing into the sea thing. I'm going to row. Verse 13, the men rowed desperately to return to land. They put their full effort into it. They're going to row. And no matter how hard man tries to save himself, folks, he can't do it. Impossible. How far off land are they at this point? I'm thinking about 100 yards. Not far. I don't know exactly. It wasn't far. They'd probably uh, only been out to sea a very short time, and uh, land was visible. We see that. They tried to row for land. They weren't far away. They desperately wanted to return to land. But there's no way they're going to make it. No way they're going to get to safety. Uh, In fact, rowing themselves into land, they're now getting irrational. In a heavy storm uh, to go to harbor, that is a suicide mission. And uh, these sailors have lost their minds. Essentially, they've become irrational. These are seasoned veterans. These sailors, uh, there's a team here that should have known what they were doing. And, And even today, maritime principles, when there's a raging storm on a ship, you don't row into land. A ship is much safer out to sea than it is in a strong storm nearing land. You could run aground. You could, uh, all kinds of bad things can happen, but they're illogical. But they think, you know what, I'm, I'm really close. I think we can do this. What a mistake. God once again intervenes. Verse 13, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Who's in control of the sea again? God. You can't do it. You cannot do it. God won't even permit them to shipwreck. Not going to let you do it. It's not going to happen. They must do it God's way. And in verse 14, finally, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Isn't that interesting? Innocent blood. Reading commentators, most of them say, you know, what what these men realized is there had been no tribunal. There had been no trial to find the guy uh, worthy of death. They didn't want to take that on themselves. In fact, they actually say, well... He's innocent. What did everyone say about Jesus when they crucified him? Pontius Pilate, the thief, 
innocent. Innocent. They said, don't make me responsible. Jonah said, sacrifice me. They say no. They think they can do it in their own strength. God's not going to go for that, folks. You cannot do it in your own strength. God requires that, that uh, for the seas to be calmed, that uh, he be identified, that God be identified, and that God be called out to by name. That is what he's going to require. And um, Jonah provided them the information about God, Yahweh Elohim, uh, now directly before throwing Jonah overboard. They now, for the first time in this book, they call themselves, uh, by themselves, out to Yahweh. They cry out and they pray. Uh, by the way, in your Bible translations, you probably see the word Lord there spelled capital L-O-R-D, all capitals. That indicates in that location in the original Hebrew language that that is the word Yahweh. It's just a literary device. So you know that as you're reading. And um, it helps us understand in the English. And, and as we saw last week, these sailors, they'd called out to every generic God in the book, little g. Remember? What kind of result did they get? None. None. There is no result. Now they call out to Yahweh, and we see uh, next week, that yields results. That yields results. And, and as I briefly touched on in our lesson uh, previously, we are not going to experience revival in this country until we identify and call out to God by name. As a nation, we're going to have to call him out by name. Not the generic little g, where everyone just calls out to their personal God. That isn't going to happen. That isn't going to work. And obviously these sailors, they, they didn't understand the cross. Obviously. Um, Old Testament ta- saints, they didn't fully grasp what the Apostle Paul uh, calls the mystery of the gospel. They didn't get all of that completely. Uh, by faith, they worshipped what, what had been revealed about God. What was accurate about God, they, they believed and they had faith in that. They didn't fully understand. They knew God was creator of heaven and earth. They knew many other things that he had uh, made a path for them through the Exodus and, and many other things. But they didn't know as much as we do today. Uh, they were responsible for the information they had. But in the New Testament, saints now know what? God has revealed himself fully. Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself. Uh, Now he desires to be worshipped through the redemption made possible through the cross. And he wants to be called out to with the name of Jesus Christ. We're responsible for that today in the name of his Son. Even when we're suffering for our faith. 1 Peter 4.16 tells us this. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That, that's, that's why we identify ourselves foremost as Christians. We are Christians. People ask, what kind of church do you have? We are Christian. That's what we are. What religion are you? I'm Christian. We don't first identify by Lutheran, Baptist, Pentecostal, many other things. They may be helpful in understanding people's background. Uh, but first and foremost, I am a Christian. And in Acts 11.26, it says, the disciples were first called what in Antioch? 
Christians. That's the identity that the Bible gives to us. It means little Christ. That's what we are. Progressively becoming into the image of Christ. We're little Christ. And in Acts 26, 28 even, at Paul's trial, this is before King Agrippa and Caesarea, uh, Paul's testimony it was very compelling. And Agrippa replied to Paul, perhaps sarcastically, but he said this, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. So as Christian, Agrippa knew at that time that people who believed in Jesus were known as Christians. And, and this is also the Father's will, uh, that, that through the name of his Son that he would be glorified. Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everything is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And and there's power only in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 4. This is when miracles were taking place at the hands of the apostle very early in the church's history. Peter is asked by those who are in in high priestly uh, uh, descent. They they had good bloodline. And uh, they ask him, By what power or in what name have you done this? Meaning these miracles. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, And let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health today. There's power in the name. And then Peter adds, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Just as those sailors had to cry out to the Lord God, Yahweh, if we're going to see people saved, if there's going to be spiritual revival, there's going to have to be some calling out by name, folks. Calling out by name Jesus Christ. And that's one distinctive or characteristic uh, that we would see of a revival, Jesus Christ elevated in the public square, not shunned. Non-negotiable. It's a little surprise that most public venues uh, that you go to for a dedication or, or uh, whatnot just want us to be quiet about Jesus. Just be quiet. And you'll run into this fairly regular in the ministry or being a pastor. You know, could you come and pray for us at our dedication? We've got a building going up or a town square or a park uh, you're a pastor, we need someone to pray, and we just love that you would come and pray. But we have one condition. You know, there's going to be a lot of people from different backgrounds there, a lot of different faiths discussed or, or present. Um, could you just keep it quiet on Jesus? No! No, we can't keep it quiet on Jesus. Uh, I can't pray for you in that situation. And even if I did, there's no power in that prayer. Why would I pray to you and call out to a generic God who we found out with the sailors isn't going to be able to save you anyhow? There's no way. Um, when I was doing uh, leading Bible studies and discipleship at, at the state capital in North Dakota, 
routinely I'd be asked to open session in prayer. And uh, you'd pray beforehand. And you would not believe the type of resistance and pressure I would get. Some direct, some coming right up to me as, as, as leaders and, and other situations. You know what? It's not appropriate to pray in the name of Jesus here. Thankfully, there are quite a few others who were very grateful to have the name of Jesus prayed for before they'd start session. But the pressure is immense. Even if it's a minority that give the pressure, they push. They push. They want us to be quiet. Uh, They don't want the name of Jesus called out. So if God wills there's going to be a revival in America, we're going to have to recognize it's going to be at the name of Jesus Christ, that every knee will bow. And uh, secondly, we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. We need to believe in the sovereignty of God and trust in it. We have to have confidence that God can and will save. And sometimes we fail on that. Sometimes we're like, well, does God really want to save anyone? Yes. Yes, he is. Um, I think of Curtis, Donna, Iva, she's here. When you're standing out on the street corner with the signs, you need to pray with confidence, Lord, I know you're wanting to save people. When we go out to the candy cane outreach and we're praying beforehand, you're praying to your heart and you're even scared going up to other folks. Saying, God, I know you can save. It's not, I hope so. I know you can do it, and God can. He has the power and the ability to save. And, and the realization of this sovereignty of God, which we see so present in Jonah, it demands, this is the good part, that when people do get saved, God gets all the glory for it. All the glory goes to God, not in, in us um, this passage that we studied today, it's not about Jonah. Did you catch that? It's not about him. It doesn't even elevate Jonah. In fact, next week when we, we go into the next passage, who do you think they praise? Jonah? They don't praise Jonah. It results in the worship of God, not of man. Um, John is not the main character or actor in this storyline. Uh, also, the sailors are not the focus. They're faceless. They are nameless. This isn't about sailors. It's not why the passage was written. Who is the hero of the book of Jonah? God. That is who the hero is. God saves. He alone receives the glory for saving. He receives glory. And and, uh, we need to be willing to preach unashamedly at God's sovereignty and His his control and His ability to save people. And, uh, you know, there have been, we've talked about them a little bit recently, uh, there's, there's been two great awakenings in America. Two great ones. And uh, the first is primarily associated with the preaching of two men, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. That would have been around 1733 when that went on. The second great awakening, that's primarily associated with the preaching of a man named Charles Finney. And that was about 100 years later, 1824. And do you know what all of these men had in common? They believed in the sovereignty of God. They preached that God is in control. Um, not that we hope that maybe God will do something. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. No, they, they preached 
the sovereignty of God. Edwards and Whitfield, they strongly embraced, embraced the Reformed theology of, of Knox, Luther, and Calvin and those. Um, Charles Finney, he, uh, he was raised Presbyterian and he became kind of what they called a modified Calvinist. But nonetheless, he preached the sovereignty of God. They trusted that God was in control of circumstance and that God is the hero of history. He's the hero. Um, one point, it just, just came here and, and I found this quote this morning. You know why I believe that John Wesley's preaching fell flat in America? You probably got a hint already. Uh, I think he was handicapped. And he, he had a number of theological problems. He was a, a devout free will Arminian who believed that people could lose their salvation. So there's some theological problems. But uh, Wesley, he was the architect of Methodism. Actually, Whitfield founded the Methodist movement. Uh, the Wesley brothers inherited, after, inherited that after Whitfield came to America. Um, but Wesley believed that most things salvific hinged upon man. That's what he thought. And as missionaries, he and his brother Charles, they arrived in the state of Georgia. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. They were hoping for revival. I've got a quote from Warren Wearsby here that says this, quote, On February 1st, 1738, John Wesley returned from Georgia. This is after 19 months, I believe, he was there. He was a weary and defeated man. His ministry in the colony had been a failure. And unfortunately, he had left behind a bad name and a number of determined enemies. Whitfield had, uh, it says, Whitfield had felt a call to serve in Georgia, and he was ready to sail when Wesley's ship arrived in England. So Wesley is coming back. February 1st. What day do you think Whitfield is leaving? February 2nd. So here's a continuation of the quote. For some reason, Wesley did not try to see Whitfield personally, but he did try to persuade him not to go to Georgia. It's because he didn't think there was any fertile ground there. And in his earlier years, and this is just by chance, this was in here. I just found this this morning. In his earlier years, John Wesley believed in casting lots to determine God's will for himself and his friends. So uh, um, just interesting. I don't know, what are the chances of that being in there? Wearsby said, had Whitfield listened to Wesley at that time, what a loss it would have been for the people of the United States. On February 2nd, 1738, Whitfield set off on the first of seven visits to the colonies, visits that were greatly blessed by God and helped to spearhead, spearhead the First Great Awakening. I think that it was all about who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Be, to be very fair, Wesley... Uh, later organized a very successful um, movement with the Methodist movement. Uh, Whitfield had left that behind. Wesley went back to England and took that over. And uh, I would also suspect that, that Wesley would not actually be on board with what we see with a lot of the Methodist movement today. It's been uh, quite some time. And I'd like to add this as well, though Whitfield and Wesley strongly disagreed on some things. Strongly. When they died, they were friends. They remained friends. Regardless of your theology, does God look like he is short-handed in the book of Jonah? He's not short-handed. 
He's got the whole world in his hands. And the same God who imprinted Jonah with a picture of the gospel, picture, picture of, of death, burial, resurrection we're going to talk about, as Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. Jesus identifies himself with Jonah. Um, all 750 years before Jesus was born, the same God who orchestrated uh, human events so that Israel would survive two exiles, Assyria and Babylon, especially Babylon, uh, the God who preserves the throne of David so that the Messiah would be born of a virgin as prophesied by Isaiah and delivered in the town of Bethlehem, as Micah foretold. God's in control of all that, folks. He is in control. He's in control of human events. He's in control of human history. And what I would like us to take away today is that one of the greatest mistakes that we make as Christians is that we don't believe God's hand is big enough. We don't trust when we're going out that God is going to do something. We think it's all up to us. What are we doing? How are we doing it? We're going to do the best we can. But God's hand is big enough. He's got the whole world in his hand. Let's pray.